2: Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview. I hope you all had a wonderful Christmas break. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect Magazine, and we're back with a new year of speaking to the brightest minds about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. Today I'm with our favourite science writer and a regular Prospect contributor, Philip Ball, who has, as you'd expect, spent a good deal of the last 12 months immersed in one story. Now we want to take a step back and look at the many and varied ways in which the pandemic got politicised. But Phil, first of all, as this goes out at the start of 2021, it really is exactly, almost exactly 12 months since Covid even became a thing, isn't it?
3: It is. It feels like a decade, doesn't it? But uh, it's extraordinary that that's right. It was right at the end of 2019 that this new virus was identified. In fact, that's why it's COVID-19, as we used to call it. Um, and uh, so it was at that time that it was identified in China. Very quickly, within days, the genome of that virus ha- had been sequenced and had been released. And that was really the point at which the, the vaccine work you know, that we're now hearing about, that it really started from then. Because once you have a genome, then you can start to, to get to work on a vaccine to combat this virus. So that's exactly right. Almost a year ago, no one had heard of this this virus, and uh, you know, here we are now um, <laughs> with vaccines already being rolled out. And I, I mean, that that's really the most extraordinary aspect, I think, of the of the story. The fact that it's taken you know less than a year um, for a vaccine to be made that is unprecedented. Um, it normally takes more like at least four years, uh, more like a decade for vaccines to be prepared. So I'm sure, we, you know, maybe we'll talk about that later. Yeah. But I, I think I really wanted to emphasize how extraordinary that is and what a triumph for the, the scientific work that has been going on, that we're in this position now. That's good. I'm pleased
2: you've got that glimmer of good news out of the way at the beginning. And as you say, we'll we'll come back to that light at the end of the tunnel, but there's there's quite a lot of bad news, as it were, between the two endpoints of this story. So first of all, let's just go back to the beginning. You know, uh, a year ago, this was just creeping onto the forum pages of the newspapers, a kind of quirky. Oh, look, there's some people with a new type of pneumonia in this place that a lot of people in Britain wouldn't have heard of, Wuhan in, 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 in China. And then, you know, the phrase that the President of the United States went on to use about it being the China virus. It started off very much as a China story and remained there for, what, a month or so before it started spreading around the world?
3: Um, well, by the end of January, I think it was clear to anyone watching this develop carefully that this was going to be a big deal. You know, it was clear that this was uh, an extremely infectious virus. Um, it we knew about these respiratory viruses and how nasty they can be. We'd, we'd had, certainly in, in the East, they, uh, they had had SARS and then MERS. And this new virus is a, a sort of variant of, of the SARS virus that appeared in uh, around 2002, 2003. MERS was the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus. So it's another coronavirus, um, an even more deadly one, in fact. Both of those had been sort of feared to be the coming pandemic that we've been all told to expect sooner or later. Neither of them proved to be the case, but I think it was very clear once this was sort of understood as one of these coronaviruses, very clear to anyone who'd been following that story that there was the potential for this to go global and to be really nasty. And I think by the end of January, it was widely recognized that that was likely to be the case
2: but the you know the, the initial story obviously was uh, an east asian story it was it was china it was then there was a case it was it taiwan and thailand and places on 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 the other side of the world and i think in the uk maybe we only woke up to it as the the, the, the coming catastrophe that it was when it got to italy and the, the the images of the hospital there but when you know we now know it's gone right round the world pretty much who do you think's had a good crisis and a bad crisis? At the beginning, it looked like a terrible story for China, but it doesn't look like such a terrible story for China now, does it?
3: No, it really doesn't. China is one of the countries that handled the uh, the outbreak well in the sense that they really managed to to close it down quickly. But, you know, know, the story that's often told about that is, well, of course, China is an authoritarian state, they can tell their citizens to do whatever they like, that that clearly is not true, or at least is at best a very partial truth, because, you know, other East Asian uh, countries have also done well, that don't have such authoritarian government, South Korea has done particularly well, Taiwan did well. But actually, what's really striking is some of the lower income East Asian countries, Vietnam, Cambodia have also done very well, and you know, I think this is one of the the most striking aspects of, of of how this pandemic has played out that the extent to which a country has succeeded in its response seems to bear no relation, or in some ways, almost an inverse relation to its uh, its level of income. You know, Africa, the whole of the African nations, by the end of the summer, had had fewer deaths from COVID than the UK alone, uh, you know, and that wasn't simply because it hadn't yet reached them. It was because they had a very different kind of response. And what do you think so, that's about? Do you think it's
2: that they got experience with Ebola and other things? We had a bit on that in the magazine that, that, that you know, that they, they knew about the importance of doing a tracing system or something in, in, in whatever kind of low resource way, or, or, or do you think it's sparsity of population? or do you think Is it anything to do with politics at all?
3: Well, it's pretty much all of these questions have complicated answers. And this is one of them that, you know, it's certainly true that in Africa, the experience with Ebola, helped in the sense that, you know, there was preparedness, just as in East Asia experience with SARS and with some of the, the nasty flu viruses, bird flu and swine flu, that they, they had that level of preparedness that, you know, people knew what to do in that situation. They knew to take it seriously and to act fast. So that's played a big role. I mean, I think in Africa, too, you know, there I think there was a sense that, in fact, some of the African leaders had said we had no. We have no other resources. They don't have the luxury of thinking. Well, we have, you know, hospital systems that will take care of this. We have good public health and so on. They have no option. Uh, you know, if, if it's not controlled swiftly and, and well, then it's going to go crazy, and there won't be the public health systems to sustain it. So they knew they had to act fast, and they did. The, in Africa, at least, I think it's it's likely that they had the advantage of a warmer climate that you know reduces the the rate at which the virus spreads but certainly that's only a, a small part of the the story too i think it's really the fact that the countries that took swift decisive action that really recognized this is something you have to 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 get a hold of very very quickly those are the ones that that did best and also i think there's a, an extent to which it's the countries that were clear and honest about what was needed that you know shared the the risks the dangers with the public very quickly they that seems also to have been a good strategy rather than kind of pretending you know it's going to be all right and we'll kind of meddle through somehow
2: let's just let's just focus on two countries that might sum that up um the the honesty thing as opposed to the the policy now Sweden has been very controversial. Every day you see a different report saying whether it's a disaster or whether it could turn out to be clever in the in in the end. But they were fairly honest and straightforward that this was a serious virus and that you'd do well to take the social distancing seriously, wouldn't they?
3: Yeah, they they were. I mean, Sweden is is a very good example of why there aren't simple answers to this. You know, it was neither the disaster uh, that some people would like to make out, nor the success story. Absolutely not the success story that others would like to make out. It's been mixed. Um, It certainly shows that there was no clear advantage of having uh, an avoidance of lockdowns. And as you say, you know, that in itself, it's not a sort of yes or no answer. Sweden was very clear with its public that this was a danger, but left it to individuals to, you know, determine how they would respond to that. So there absolutely was distancing that was self-imposed. In Sweden mm. and clearly that you know it would have been worse had that not been the case but also clearly it seems that it, it, it wasn't enough. I mean Sweden at the moment is having a very nasty second wave much worse than its neighbours and in fact you know Finland and, and Denmark are offering uh, help and Norway I believe are offering help to Sweden because it's been hit so badly this time around cool.
2: If Sweden, if Sweden is bad but could have been worse, let's turn to the United States, where uh, there wasn't consistent and clear messaging about whether this was a serious business or not. Was there?
3: Well, you know, in some ways. I guess we have to recognize here, as within, as with so many other aspects, the United States is an exception in the extraordinarily strange and awful way in which things played out, and certainly the extent to which this became a politicized issue, not just a political one. Um, there was uh, the, the degree of polarisation that happened in the US was, you know, I think this is the thing that struck me most of all, that we knew that it was a politically incredibly polarised nation to the extent that it's become almost ungovernable, but so quickly COVID reflected all of that, that, you know, in trying to to, uh, contain and govern a a response to the pandemic was impossible, too. Different states took different approaches, generally based on their political orientation. The messaging was, as far as I can see, almost non-existent, certainly incredibly, incredibly confusing. Um, And as with so much else in American life, um, your attitude to COVID became a badge of allegiance, a badge of tribal allegiance. So it really, you know, had no relation to what was actually happening, what was actually unfolding. It was really a way of demonstrating what your political allegiances were, and so it led to this really horrible situation that you know we're hearing about now, where whole communities are being devastated by COVID because they were not told to take any uh, responsive measures or that they you know, felt that, that this wasn't the kind of community they were. And where even as people are dying, there is this extraordinary disastrous level of denialism that, that the people mm-hmm. who are dying can't understand what it is when it can't possibly be COVID because that's all a hoax or because that's just like a, the flu.
2: And so, I mean, you've not mentioned the name Trump, but it's
3: it, the president does have
2: such a platform that uh, it's not just American society. It was American leadership, or lack of, wasn't it?
3: Well, I mean, of course it was, and of course you know the the, the Trump's response played an immense part in this, and I think it would be fair to say that that response. Obviously, it was terrible, but it was terrible also in its incoherence. Mm. It was, go, you know, going from one way to another as as everything that Trump has done is 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 incoherent. This was no different. And, you know, so in a way, it's no surprise. But, you know, at one moment, it's the message was that, you know, America is doing wonderfully because we have these wonderful scientists. And now we're hearing, you know, oh, America has, you know, which other country in the world would have developed a vaccine so fast. But actually, it was another country that did that. So, you know, there's this kind of triumphalism of the American way. And on the other hand, the spreading of sheer conspiracy theories about yeah. COVID and, you know, and crazy medications about it. So, you know, it wasn't even coherent in its denialism and its anti-science message. It was swinging all over the place. You know, should we wear masks or shouldn't we? And the, I mean, the masks issue was, you know, because it's such a visible thing. It's, it was really striking to me how that became literally a badge of political allegiance that you displayed when you were out in public. So, um, so we um, can be grateful,
2: I guess, that when we look at the UK, that it, it hasn't, we haven't been misgoverned in quite that way. There was fumbling and inconsistent messaging at the very beginning from Boris Johnson, in particular, wasn't there? You know, I'm still going to be shaking people's hands and all that, even as the evidence came in that that was very bad idea but since march the absolutely consistent line has been that we are following the science no no culture wars here apart from you've looked at this quite closely and you 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 think that following the science isn't all it claims to be
3: oh well it was it was always a bad message to send out because you know as everyone who uh follows the development of science policy knows, there is no such thing as the science and in particular in a a completely new situation like this where you're dealing with an unknown virus there are all kinds of things that we didn't know about it at the beginning from you know what the uh, how fast it spread to whether it was transmitted through you know touch from surfaces or uh, by aerosol by you know airborne transmission all of these things were uncertain so there could be no single science that one could follow um, so you know that was although It was understandable at the beginning that the government wanted to give this reassuring message that they were going to be listening to scientists. Saying that they would be following the science was always the the, the wrong way to go about that. But I I think it's also clear that increasingly they haven't followed the scientific advice, or at least that they have increasingly factored that into other influences, you know, that they have been concerned about the economy, about people's jobs, about the effect on the broader effects of lockdowns on health. All of these things are valid concerns that require a balance. But I, I think it's, it's really striking that this message of, you know, we're going to follow the science or we're going to be led by the science, that, that message, that motto has literally been dropped from the press conferences that they've been having because they can no longer claim it. And I think, you know, the events over the past couple of months with the second lockdown and so on have really shown clearly the divergence between what the scientists are advising and what the, uh, the policies are.
2: Come back to the politicians, but there was a point in the crisis where you were sort of uncharacteristically cross, weren't you, with the scientific advisors themselves, who are proper scientists, but you
3: felt had allowed themselves to be used. I think it was always going to be an immensely difficult job that the chief scientific advisors were going to have to do to cope with all of these uncertainties and to try to formulate some sort of coherent response to it. Where I felt disappointed and at one stage really quite angry with, with the response was that they seemed insistent on the notion that somehow you could separate the scientific advice from what was happening politically. And I think in particular, that became clear uh, with the Dominic Cummings affair that you know that it was really the press conference shortly after that that the two chief scientists attended that made it clear to me how compromised the scientific advice had become at that stage because it now it seems very clear that Cummings actions and the fact that there were no consequences for him from that those that breach of 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 lockdown rules that severely undermined public confidence and public compliance public trust in governance and in what they were being told to do. It really c- collapsed this notion of you know, togetherness uh, that, that we had felt in the early months of the, the pandemic. So that made it become a public health issue. And the fact that the two chief scientists said, "Well, this is political," this is balance yeah. and witty. Yes, that's that's right. That the, the fact that they they stepped back and said, "You know, well, I'm not going to be involved in politics. I'm not going to comment on that." To my mind, that the, the, they should have been prepared to recognise that there were clear public health implications of what had happened and that that was something they had a duty to speak about as indeed the deputy chief medical advisor Jonathan Van Tam did in a subsequent press conference in a very low key but very clear way. He, He simply stated the rules are there for everyone and everyone must obey them and I think that sent out a clear message that what Cummings did wasn't what people should be doing. That was all it needed. You know it didn't have to be a condemnation of Cummings but that wasn't what we got from the chief scientists at that crucial moment and it, it, it made me really concerned that, that the um the science had at that point been sort of sucked into and compromised by the political constraints it was operating within and we really needed at that point to be reassured that the scientists were speaking independently. And how did the machinery because it goes back a long way doesn't
2: it this idea of a chief scientific officer and um it doesn't go back as far but it goes back a while i think this sage the scientific advisory group uh it's all got quite controversial hasn't it particularly because cummings you just mentioned was turning up at sage i think at some point
3: well, th- th- there was a concern that because he and, uh, and, and some of his uh, assistants were attending the, the SAGE meetings, that the independence of the scientific discussions would be compromised. Now, you know, it's very hard to establish t- to what extent that might have happened. I mean, it does seem clear that Dominic Cummings was speaking at those meetings um, and, you know, he wasn't just there as a, a quiet observer. And I think it's a valid concern Certainly, given as I say what we saw subsequently about the way the the science sort of became entrained in the politics, as it almost inevitably will be, it is a valid concern that uh, those meetings perhaps weren't able to you know sustain the degree of independence that they should have. On the other hand, you know clearly you do want some kind of conduit that is that is conveying what went on in those meetings to to governance, and it's not unprecedented for um, government. Uh, uh, uh representatives to be present at sage meetings in fact you know there is the uh, the criticism that there wasn't enough government and certainly there wasn't enough presence of the prime minister at some of the key uh, scientific discussions that were happening in the early days of the pandemic but i you know i think that the um the the, the worries were sort of broader than that and in particular it seems to me that the government uh policy was listening much more to some of the scientific advice than to others and it was quite narrow that it was listening very much to the modelers who were trying to understand the spread of the pandemic who we now know had some serious oversights in what they understood for example you know in their understanding of how the care system worked that was that had catastrophic consequences and that the government advice wasn't being led enough by people with broader understanding of public health and it was for that, that that kind of reason too that the independent SAGE group was set up by Sir David King, the former uh, chief scientific advisor to the the Blair and Brown administrations. So, you know, there was enough concern within the scientific community to do something that was really quite unprecedented, to set up this separate body that gave itself almost the same name as the official body and that was providing advice that was a controversial thing to do, and I could see the pros and cons of it, but I think the independent SAGE group has actually been a very useful voice in this discussion too, and has produced some very, very useful documents that they've made publicly available. From quite a lot of what you're saying,
2: like, you know, it's been uncomfortable, it's tested the relationship, but actually the, the role of science in public life, you know, through innovations like independent SAGE, and also through the, some of the scientists sticking up to politicians, we kind of got back to a reasonable Relationship uh, is that fair?
3: Well, I I think I think it has survived. <laughs> I would put it that way uh, rather. But I think that at the moment, I think we can certainly see uh, uh, some serious tensions between the scientific advisers and government policy. You know, the scientists are clearly uncomfortable with the fact that lockdown rules. Uh, were relaxed for the Christmas period, um, and I think that there are very sound scientific reasons to be worried about that. Um, w- you know, w- we could see the effect of uh, the Thanksgiving celebrations in the U.S. on the rise of, uh, of of the spread of infection in the wake of that. So, you know, I I, I think that um, that those tensions are becoming. More apparent, Um, and you know, there's this whole uh, uh, question of how the discussion around the second lockdown happened in September and October. That it it, it seems that the advice that some of the advice that the government called in was from people who have a more marginal position in terms of their their views on the effectiveness of lockdowns and what the appropriate response should be. So some of the uh, almost who are becoming almost maverick scientists who take a you know a, a contrarian position on this were brought into Downing Street to 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 talk, and it seemed that they uh, swayed that decision and helped to delay the the the, uh, the second lockdown in ways that I think could have quite serious consequences. Certainly, they, that delay has made it much harder to control the spread of the virus during the winter months.
2: If we put it together, I mean, like the the consensus, I guess, is that the government acted uh, uh, perhaps three weeks too late in uh, the March lockdown, which almost cost Boris Johnson his life, as well as, uh, as as well as many other people in the country, where it really did. Perhaps three weeks ish too late again uh, in the autumn uh, with the second wave, and. In between some policies that, in retrospect, look like a very bad idea, like uh, eat, eat out to help out, you know, when it would have been, I'm sure, in the end, better on the public purse as well to just stay, pay restaurants to stay shut rather than to subsidise them, to stay open and create public health problems, um, you know, literally a month or two later. When you put it all together, just how bad is the UK performance?
3: Uh. Pretty bad. I mean, the statistics show this very clearly, that it's, it's you know, we've fared uh, as w- one of the worst nations in terms of the per capita mortalities. Um, I mean, we're right at the, you know, the top of that terrible table. Um, we've also fared uh, w- as one of the worst nations, certainly uh, one of the worst, perhaps the worst in Europe, in terms of the economic hit we've taken and that we're going to take. Um, And, you know, of course, all of this is not even considering what impact Brexit is going to have uh, in the the coming year. So uh, we, we, we clearly have done very badly i think that, that has to be said i think what has struck me about the political response in the uk is that although at the top political level we haven't had this awful polarization that we saw in the us and we haven't certainly haven't had the awful science denialism that we've seen there what i think we have uh, struggled with and what the government uh, what has led to some of these missteps that the government has made is that it is the the conflict between a populist form of government, which is what we have, and the needs that a pandemic like this inevitably create. So you know the, the government, uh, it seems to me, has been walking a fine line between trying to, trying to listen to the science, um, I shouldn't say the science, trying to listen to scientists, um, mm. but at the same time having to cope with a right-wing media that really wants to stoke these divisions, really wants to, to promote this contrarian position to suggest that masks are a bad idea, that you know, any constraints on our, perf- our personal liberties are a bad idea, that lockdowns are unnecessary, we should all do what Sweden did. This is really a strong message that has come from, from the, the right-wing press and that the government is very concerned about because that's a big part of its constituency. And you know, I think we've seen a real concern for, you know, somehow trying to appease those voices that has led to this dithering. To this to 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 the you know attempts to avoid lockdowns or to call it a lockdown attempts to reassure the public that everything is fine again or that it's going to be fine by the summer or by christmas and you can all go out and and celebrate and eat and so forth i think that's really what's been driving some of these bad decisions is the you know the government's sensitivity to to those voices in the press that is normally supportive of it
0: Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase.
2: But as you said at the beginning, we are now going into 2021 in a much happier position because the science, in heavily inverted commas, has excelled itself. I remember back in March or April, you wrote a piece for us saying it was going to take 18 months, and this was on the basis of talking to all the top vaccinologists and whatever in the, in, in the, in the US agencies, That uh, it would take 18 months to get the vaccine made. In, in practice, it took something like half that time because of ingenuity and people running processes in parallel and, 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 and all of that. Is the politics, the awful politics you've been talking about that's dogged this, certainly in America and to some extent in the UK, is that now going to pass because we can see a way out with the rollout of this vaccine that every sane person wants to see happen? Or do you think we're in for more culture wars and conspiracy theories about the vaccine?
3: Oh, we, we can see already that there are, you know, the the and we knew all along that the anti-vaccination movement w- was gearing up for this moment when vaccines are available. And I think we, it's, it, we're in a very delicate moment now. You know, it it, it seems quite likely that in the US where this movement is huge and is much more politicized than it is here that that is quite likely to seriously compromise the vaccination programs and to prevent the development of and this is being used in the proper sense of herd immunity through vaccination and the worry is that that might happen here that that there won't be enough people who are prepared to take the vaccine to develop the the kind of herd immunity that a vaccination programme needs to to aim for. So Would it
2: not be okay, So long as the majority, and I I bet a lot on the idea that it is a solid majority of people who just want a vaccination so they can get back to to normal life, even if you had, let's say, a quarter of people who were very resistant, would that still be a problem? I mean, there'd there'd be so many fewer opportunities for me to catch the virus if I got onto a bus and... Three out of four people had had the vaccine.
3: Well, the the idea is that if you reach the level uh, at which herd immunity is achieved, then the virus simply can't propagate. It can't sort of stay endemic in the population. But you have to get to that level in order to really suppress it. And no one knows what that level is. This is the problem that we're you know we we still don't know quite all the parameters well enough, but it's suspected that it probably is around sort of 60, 70, 75% of the population, uh, maybe as, as as much as 80% need to be vaccinated in order to achieve it. So, you know, it's it's by no means a given that enough people will, will take it to, to reach those levels, but that's absolutely what we need to aim for. And my, I mean, in terms of the politicization of it, you know, I think the anti-vax movement, there are all kinds of strategies, to it. Some of them are political in the sense that some of them come from the far right. The far right is, you know, using that as a way of mobilising other messages and getting its own uh, messages out. But uh, what really what has concerned me in the UK is the this strand of vaccine nationalism that took off the moment we were in the position Uh, this wonderful position to roll out a vaccine programme, what happens? Ministers start uh, start in on the nationalistic aspects of it, which is, you know, on the the one hand, absurd, because this was clearly a huge international effort. And the vaccine that we're going to use was one that was developed, you know, initially by a German biotech company and developed by Pfizer, an international company. But on the other hand, extremely damaging, because if you're in a position where you absolutely have to develop public trust in order to to be able to have an effective vaccination program, then the last thing you want is ministers telling, saying things that simply are not true about, for example, the fact that, you know, we were able to to approve this vaccine first because of Brexit, which is simply not true, demonstrably not true. And once that has been demonstrated, you know, why should anyone then trust anything else? that the health minister has said if he has voiced that untruth. You know, why make this case that somehow there is something special about the UK that has allowed this when, you know, it's not a UK vaccine that we're, uh, that, that we're rolling out at this point? So it, it really seems that the height of unnecessary uh, uh, irresponsibility for that sort of nationalism to appear at this crucial moment in the, in the game. Oh dear, so for all the hope, it
2: sounds like the politics of the pandemic isn't quite done yet. But uh, it is important to keep that note of hope as the vaccine starts to roll out nonetheless. That's all from us. So huge thanks to Phil, both for writing so fabulously and keeping an eye over this you know, complex and fast moving terrain all of uh, the last year. And uh, we look forward to reading more of what he's got to say going into this year as well. And thanks to all of you for joining us on The Prospect Interview. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and review. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll be back again next week.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince.